Okay, I'm gonna be upfront. Today's episode will be a little bit long, but that's because it's with two of my very close PA friends, um, and we are talking about PA residency. So I have Jamie and Erin, who are both ER PAs, and Jamie did not do a residency, and Erin did. So we're gonna break down pros and cons, what that looks like, and so you'll have a little bit more information about it. Welcome to the Pre-PA Club Podcast. If you want to learn how to become a physician assistant, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Savannah Perry. Let's get to it. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Savannah Perry. I am a dermatology PA. I've been practicing for almost six years now, and I started blogging at the PA platform which I love doing, and I started this podcast because it is really fun to get to talk to different people. But I do want to say thank you for just being here and listening, and yeah, I hope you find it helpful. If you ever don't, let me know, or if you have ideas for an episode, um, I'm pretty accessible on Instagram. You can always email me. I'm at the PA platform on Instagram, and my email is info at, wait, info at the PA platform.com. Before we jump into today's episode, I have something so exciting to tell you about. Um, And it is something, so okay, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you know that in March we were supposed to have this big pre-PA conference in Atlanta. It was going to be awesome. And guess what? COVID-19 happened and we had to cancel, which was obviously the right call. Very disappointing. And, you know, we are wanting to do this again in the future, but right now things are just so uncertain. We're not really sure what that looks like. So we came up with an alternative option, which is a virtual pre-PA conference. So this event will be held on April 25th. If you go to prepaconference.com, you'll see all the details. You can still use the code FUTUREPA for $5 off, and the registration is only $15 to begin with. So that means it's only $10. This um, conference will be all day from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Um, We have seven sessions planned, and they include an overview of just the application process, CASPA, um, answering a bunch of questions, kind of how to make your application stand out. We're going to have a PA faculty and admissions panel with faculty and admissions people from Yale's online PA program, Um, Marshall B. Ketchum and Emory, which will be so great. Um, I've spoken with... Alan Platt from Emory in the past, and he is amazing. Um, then we will talk about choosing and re- or researching and choosing PA programs, and we have two of our pre-PA coaches who are going to go through all of that with you. That's what they coach on constantly, and so they're going to help walk you through that process of how to narrow that down and then what you need to look for in CASPA for those schools. And then we are going to have a PA student panel, and then we will have um, a personal statement talk, and then we will have a practicing PA panel, and then we will have an interview talk. And I think that covers it, but it will be so much information in one day, and there will be replays available for everyone who signed up. So if you go to prepaconference.com, again, use the code FUTUREPA for that discount, and we can't wait to see you there. So it'll be really exciting and hopefully a lot of fun. So that is my pre-PA conference spiel. Um, it's really soon, and so you won't hear me talk about it for very long, but I would love to have you join us there. All right, now we'll get back to the regularly scheduled 
podcast interview. Before we jump into today's interview, I do want to mention our sponsors. The number one sponsor being My PA Resource, which is a personal statement editing service. Caspa is opening soon in about a month, I guess less than a month now. So that means it's time. You know, if you've got some extra time on your hands, you should be working on your essay. That's a great thing to do right now. My PA resource only uses physician assistants to edit the essays for PA school, and I am one of the editors. You can use the code FUTUREPA for a discount on their services. And then once you get accepted to PA school, if you're looking for something to kind of refresh your knowledge, check out PA School Prep, which has a review in anatomy, physiology, and med terms. Again, you can use the code FUTUREPA for anything there, as well as on the PA platform website. I am Erin. I uh, went to a PA school in DC um, and then I completed an emergency medicine fellowship in Florida. I am now practicing in just a traditional emergency medicine job. I'm Jamie Trudell, formerly Morosky, and I went to school in Detroit. I'm also a physician assistant in the ER. However, I did not do a residency. I practiced in Michigan, and my first job was just like straight out of school into the ER. Cool. Um, okay, first question that's just my question. Is there a difference in a residency and a fellowship for PAs? Or is that just no. terminology? It's just terminology. Um, so... A lot of places will call it a fellowship um, because we don't have to do a residency. It's optional. And same thing for like a physician, a fellowship is optional while a residency is basically required. Um, but it's really just discrepancy of the program. And so some places will be residents, some places will be fellows. It's the same thing. Okay. Um, Jamie, did you think about doing a residency at any point or that wasn't on your radar? No. It was not really on my radar. I knew they existed, but I had networked my way into my position before I had graduated. So it wasn't something that I even like got to the point of considering because I didn't really need to look for a job. It just kind of fell into my lap. All right. And were both of you wanting to do ER or how did you kind of choose that path or position? Um, so I knew I wanted to do ER. I went to PA school in DC and then knew I wanted to go back to Florida as quickly as possible because I really like Florida and Publix. Um, <laughs> and so when I started looking for ER jobs, because I knew that's what I wanted to do, um, I encountered that a lot of places where I was looking to go required one to two years of experience. Yeah, that's common um, here too. Right. And so I thought a lot about staying at a place in DC where I could have gotten my year of experience and then going to Florida, I didn't really want to do that. I was really tired of the cold. <laughs> and I um, actually had a friend who had gone through the residency program that I went to. Um, and she had nothing but good things to say about it. And I figured, hey, why not? You know, I really want to go to Florida. I might as well apply to this residency program in addition to applying to jobs. And then kind of whatever works out is what works out. Okay. Did you apply to more than one residency or just the one? I only applied to the one because I really wanted to go to Florida. Okay. Are they competitive um, or not too much? So not as competitive as like getting into PA school, but definitely very competitive. Um, so most programs will have anywhere from like two to six spots. Um, my program had five spots um, and they have over 70 applicants for those five spots. So it's pretty competitive. 
Okay. Um, okay, so what what I want to know, Aaron, your motivation for wanting, I mean, you said to get a job and kind of get your foot in the door, but let's talk about. Did you want me to answer the other question first? Sure. I don't remember so what it was. I did not start school wanting to do ER. Okay, yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I maybe wanted to do women's health, but after my women's health rotation, I really didn't like the actual practice of it. I remember and that. So I that like immediately after ER or immediately after women's health was ER, I think, or maybe vice versa. And so they were like right side by side, and I just liked ER a lot better. It was very procedure heavy and very hands on. And it was very similar to waitressing, which is kind of weird, like a weird analogy. But, like, with waitressing, you, like, have all your different tables. Every table is doing different things. And, like, you're walking room to room or table to table and serving them all differently. But you still, like, kind of reset each room and then you never see them again. Of course, you have your regulars and stuff. But you have your frequent flyers in the ER, too. This is a great analogy. I take it back. It is. Um, (laughs) So... I just felt like really at home there because I like started my career at 16 in the service industry. So it was like an easy transition and it just like felt comfortable. Okay. So let's talk about being new grads coming out of school. So me going into Durham, I did not feel prepared at all. I needed definitely training on the job there. I think there may be one Durham kind of fellowship residency in New York. Um, there aren't, very many formal programs for Durham. Um, But I definitely, like, it took me a while to feel comfortable. Did that play into your decision at all, Erin, to go in and do a fellowship versus how did you feel going into, straight into the ER, Jamie, as a new grad without that formal training? So I absolutely wanted more training. Um, I was someone who struggled during didactic year um, and who was told that I struggled, we'll phrase it like that. Um, I did a lot better in clinical year. I felt a lot better actually seeing patients and being able to like put things into practice instead of just reading it in a textbook. Um, But I wanted a little bit more guidance Um, And I wanted a place that was going to be as invested in my education as I was invested in, you know, becoming the best PA that I could be. Um, And so that definitely did play a role, like when I was thinking about what jobs I would want to do. So I was only going to like accept a job in the emergency department if I knew that they were going to, you know, have an emphasis on my education and want to teach me stuff and be happy to answer my questions and all of those things. Um, and I did really feel like doing a fellowship, especially after talking to my friend, was going to give me that place. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that it played like a huge role into me wanting to do a fellowship was to get more kind of guidance than just being thrown in out like as soon as I graduated and be like, all right, you're free. Go save patients. Yeah, that was my same goal. I wanted to feel more comfortable and I definitely wanted to be handheld a little bit. And so that was a question I asked in my interview for my job was like, how do you support your new grad PAs to make sure that we're not just like thrown in practicing autonomously because they don't feel comfortable with that. And they had a program where they they call it like their collaborative agreement, but it's basically where you're coupled with the docs the entire first six months at a minimum and that six months, every single patient you see, even if they just stub their toe, you go and you tell a physician about it. They go see the patient, and then they give you, like, they're like, 
yeah, agree. Go ahead, discharge them. Or like if it's more complicated and you missed something in their workup, they're like, you probably should consider PE. Maybe you should add a D-dimer. And so sometimes you get that like feedback. And at six months, you have a meeting, you get evaluated. Most people don't get cut loose that soon. But this is even the case for um, our new hires that have experience because we've had some that come out of urgent care. And it's just a little bit different when you practice emergency medicine from any other specialty. So they handhold everybody at first. And so some people get cut loose at six months, but um, then they continue every three months from there to keep evaluating you. And at some point you get cut loose. So like me and the girl I was hired with, we were both cut loose at nine months. But there's a girl that we were working with recently that got cut loose at 12 months instead because she needed like a little bit more support. But they try really hard to like review our cases, review our charting and like make sure that what we're doing is what they would agree with. And so we like that's the weird part about ER is you don't have one single doc that you're like collaborating with. It's whoever's on the shift and whoever can take you. And every hospital does that a little bit differently. I work for a staffing company, so I work at several hospitals, so I can speak to that a little bit. But um, my one of my hospitals, like from 2 to 4 p.m., you'll staff with this person. From 4 to 6 p.m., you staff with this person. But at the other hospital, it's just like whoever's there or whoever you like or whatever. And you, you kind of find docs that you're like, that person I'm going to staff this person with. And you have other docs where you're like, this person's great for if I just need to get them out the door quickly. And like, this person's going to make me do a huge workup. And you get kind of a feel of like which doc likes which thing. And you can get comfortable with that. And then you like get to know them. And they get to know you. And they get to trust you. Um, I work night shifts a lot with it's just me and a doc. And sometimes the doc is in a trauma or a code or something. And I'm seeing everyone else. And sometimes they trust you and sometimes they don't. And so it's nice to kind of find the people who you like work well with and get in the swing of things so I think that helps a lot with support too is if they're like if they like you and they're willing to teach you you're going to do a lot better than if they're just like Ugh, this PA like not self-motivated at all yeah honestly that was like very similar to kind of how my residency was was for the first uh you know six months we were really handheld and we talked about all of our cases and you know we talked about things before we ordered things and all of those all of that um and then after that we definitely got more autonomous and we're seeing patients more on our own and doing all of those things um i think a big conception with residency or fellowship programs is that you're still a student and you're still in a student role um and i absolutely was not still a student like i was a practicing pa i was just a practicing pa who they were emphasizing educating and teaching me so that i could be better Okay. That's a good way to explain fellowship too. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's interesting. And that's, I think people don't understand that about that about medical residencies either because people will still, I mean, Lane's done now, um, my husband, but he, people would still ask him like, oh, you're still in school. And he's like, no, I've been a doctor for the past three years. Um, I'm just, you know, furthering my learning. Um, But okay. Can y'all compare your kind of schedule those first years like Jamie what was your schedule as someone new to ER but not doing a residency and then Erin what was your schedule as someone who is in a structured program you want me to go first then sure that's how you phrase the question um I worked 15 or 16 shifts a month we do 10 hour shifts and we swing shift meaning like whatever shift they schedule you for is what you get so we work an 8 a.m. shift, an 11 o'clock shift, a 2 p.m. shift, and a 9 p.m. shift. But when I 
first started the nine o'clock shift was a 5 p.m. shift instead. They recently changed it because we were having the bus come at four o'clock and dumped a lot of people and really killed the docks that night. So we changed our shift overnight. But um, they they put you they try to trend you up so if you're gonna switch to night shift they try to do like an 8 a.m then a 2 p.m then a 9 p.m and not just be like 9 9 8 but you do 15 or 16 a month they're typically clumped in two or three at a time and then you have like one to five off and then on your days off you're completely off because you don't have anything to think about unless you're like me and you procrastinate and you have a lot of charts to do and then you can chart on your day off or you can stay late at your shift and finish charting or you can chart as you go and keep up with your charts and not do any of those things. <laughs> um, so I will say that my residency program was probably more lenient than a lot of emergency medicine residency programs out there. Um, there are a lot of residency programs, especially ones that are actually affiliated with like a physician residency program where you are truly a resident and you're working 200 plus hours a month. Um, and you know, you're doing a ton of shifts and all of those things. Mine was a lot more laid back. It was great. Um, we had to work 16 to 18 shifts a month. Um, and then we had every Wednesday, we had four to six hours of didactics. Um, for our first six months, we were always the swing person, which for us meant that we were like the evening shift, which was like one to 11 or 10 to 9, 10 a.m. to 9 p.m., um, or 2 to midnight. Um, and that was really just so that there would be another APP on shift with us in addition to the um, attending being with us. And then once we got off of our, like, six months of training, we were able to do kind of the more random shifts, which were, like, a 7 a.m. shift, a 10 a.m. shift, and so on and so forth. Um my hospital that I did my residency program at actually only had one APP on staff overnight. Um, and we had this one really, really amazing PA who worked probably 26 days out of the month. And so I never had to do a single night shift during my residency. Oh my God, that's crazy. Wow. Yes. We have a PA like that at my job. She works like at least 22 shifts a month. And that's bananas to me. Like, I do not want to be at work that much. I've done. I don't know how she did it one time, and I wanted to die. It's terrible. Do not recommend. Zero out of ten. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I don't know how. I don't know how this PA did it, but she was amazing at it. There would be like times where I would be like trying to finish something up, and she would come in and she'd be like, "No, no, no, go home. I will do this." And it was amazing, and I would just go home, and she'd be like finish up things for me it was she was fantastic is fantastic yeah nice to have good co-workers yes very important um a question we got a lot on instagram is do you get paid during a pa residency absolutely um you absolutely get paid is it less than what you would make as a new grad going into emergency medicine 100 <laughs> percent um most residency or fellowship programs tend to be around 50 to 60 thousand a year um my residency program was on the upper level so it was in the 60s um and then we actually got paid a 
regular like the regular rate for any hours we did over our required um, amount a month. So that was great because you know on months that my um, hospital was short staffed, I could pick up extra shifts and I actually made real money and it was fantastic. Yeah, that's I mean, I would I would expect you to at least get paid, but. That's the yeah. same like pay scale I have currently. Like we have a required amount of hours each year, and if you exceed that, there's an hourly rate that you get paid out for any extra hours you pick up. So these people who pick up tons and tons of extra shifts, they they do get paid more. And then once you hit like full time hours, which is considered like a 40 hour work week for 50 weeks out of the year, so 2,000 hours. Once you hit that 2,000 mark, you also get time and a half for overtime which is nice. I've never worked that much. I haven't, I like my clinical experience is relatively limited. So I haven't actually needed to get paid out over time, but that is a nice part of the job as well. Yeah. Yeah. My job that I'm at now actually does something similar as well. So we have a certain amount of hours that we're contracted for a month and then anything over those contracted amount, um, we make, uh, like an extra, stipend it's not time and a half but it's an extra hourly amount um and it's really nice especially like during season for us which is snowboard season um when we're very very busy and everyone is working more sh more shifts than they're actually contracted for so we get paid extra nice okay um somebody had a question on instagram about do you think that pa fellowships or residencies exploit pas um, I definitely think that there are programs that do. Um, there are all of these little quote unquote residencies. Yeah, um, not just emergency medicine. Like we're just talking residencies in general. Yeah, what other have y'all heard of? I know I've heard of ICU, OBGYN. Yeah, critical care. I think um, those are the big three. Those are the big about, ones. Maybe I've psych. Heard about I've heard about like smaller things though. Like I've heard one that where it was like, it's a dermatology fellowship, but it, this is the exact situation. I think Eric, Aaron was just about to talk about of like, they say, Oh, this is a fellowship. We're going to train you, but really they hire you for their office and they just pay you 50,000 a year. Yeah. And I mean, exactly. Durham, still it's, it's a big issue in Derm. Like I said, I think there's one in New York that's like more of a real program, but otherwise like, yeah. a lot of derm jobs because it is so competitive and people want to get into it, what'll end up happening is they'll offer them like a training period and sometimes it's long, like six to twelve months, and they want to pay them a medical assistant salary, even though like you are a certified PA. Um and so I mean from that regard, I don't know if I want to call it like exploitation, but it kind of it's it kind of is. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's. I'm in a bunch of you know. Derm I mean, it'd be different if you were but... doing the MA role and you right. weren't licensed yet. Like, if they were like, "Oh yeah, we'll take you on so you can have an income in this three months while you're waiting for your credentialing and stuff to kick in." Right. Sure, you can pay me minimum wage and I'll do my minimum wage job. But if I'm going to be doing my actual clinical role, you better pay me my clinical money. <laughs> well, and I think they they come at it as like there is a huge learning curve with derm, and so. They'll say, you know, like nah, you before... guys just don't look up a bunch of rashes and <laughs> tell people to put some no, steroid cream hard. on it. Exactly. Um, no, if it's not one of the five deadly rashes, like, shh, you know. Y'all, don't discount derb. Jamie, you definitely <laughs> sent me a picture of something today to diagnose for you. So, 
<laughs> calling you out on that. Um, but touche. <laughs> but that wasn't for my job because at work I would have been like, I don't care. It's not gonna kill. It's you. not an emergency. <laughs> but no. But I think I mean the issue with that is that or what they'll say is that you're not bringing in money because you're not like seeing patients on your own or billing. But I just don't think that's fair. I don't think it's fair to do across the board because like my job told me, you know, we don't know when you're going to start seeing patients on your, my very first job, when you're going to start seeing patients on your own, like probably because I was on a salary plus a commission based on my production bonus types um, set up. But they were like, Mm -hmm. you're probably not going to, like, bonus your first year. But what they found was that, number one, I was very motivated. Number two, I was a pretty quick learner. And I was seeing patients pretty much at six months. They also, I had two um, supervising physicians, and they both had pregnancies that first year. And so I kind of had to step up and step into more of a role to cover for them. Um, And so I think... I think it's, like, in that case, even though it wasn't, they didn't, my job did not try to do that to me at all, but, like, that's a situation where that would have not been a great setup for me had I taken an offer like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I do see how it could be exploitation. Yeah, I definitely think that there are fellowships that exploit you and those are the ones that aren't really truly like a structured fellowship like my fellowship was structured even though it was maybe a little bit more relaxed than some of the other ones out there we had weekly you know didactic classroom training um we had off-service rotations so I went and did a trauma rotation I went and did an orthopedics rotation where I was off-service for a month um you know we uh went to SEMPA and competed in the SEMPA quiz bowl and did all of those things. Um, and there are definitely like other like fellowship programs, quote unquote, that are really just like Jamie is saying, they're paying you less money because they're trying to quote train you. Um, but they're not actually giving you like the true education aspect of an ideal fellowship. So I think it's hard. I think the only way to combat that is to do your research. And so to ask them the hard questions, like, am I going to have an off-surface rotation? You know, every week, are we going to meet? And are we going to do a classroom training? Am I going to have a lecture with somebody? Are we going to do some labs? Like, things like that. The off-service rotation, I think, is the biggest benefit to a fellowship because I have never been in the ICU. I, They told me for my intubation credentialing that I could go to the OR and intubate because we need to get at least five tubes. And right now I'm like, no, I'm staying very far away from intubations. Go ahead and let that lapse. I'd like to stay as far away from that as possible, <laughs> but that's only because I don't want to die of coronavirus. Um, the... But, like, I don't really get to go off service at all. And I think that would have been a huge benefit to understanding the ER a little bit better is, like, seeing where your patients go and how they get managed there. Yeah. It was nice. Absolutely. Like, we went to the OR as well. I tubed patients once a month for my entire fellowship. Um, and I would get, like, 10 tubes a day, which was great. It was in an OR. It was in a controlled setting. I was able to do you know, direct and video, which was always nice because we really only did video in um, the emergency department. And then also like seeing them in the ICU after I had like stabilized them and sent them away was nice because I got to see like the whole picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely think that's helpful now because like when I'm sometimes in the emergency department, like I think to myself, 
myself. <laughs> oh, like they're going to really want me to do this instead of doing this because this is what they're going to do in the ICU. Yeah. That's interesting. And that's knowledge that I don't know that I necessarily would say I lack because I go to the CDU, which is our like clinical decision unit. So I have like a little bit of that inpatient brain. I can kind of say like, okay, like I know for a stupid example that kidney stone, they're going to want to strain the urine. So like I'll start straining it in the ER just because I know that's what they're going to do once they get admitted or like I'll start a fluid infusion or I'll put their diet order in or like silly stuff like that. But there's definitely a huge benefit to knowing like, okay, I'm going to start a presser on this person because their blood pressure is crap. And like, what one did they like upstairs? And that kind of stuff is helpful. Okay. So I guess when I think of it, I mean, the only experience I know of with residencies is like medical school residency where at times like it does feel, I don't want to say exploiting, but and they've put some regulations in place. But, I mean, they're working, you know, six on, one off for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time and crazy hours and all this stuff. Um, is it is it similar to a medical school residency or do you think it's different? There are definitely some that are. So, like, at my current job, I um, have a coworker who did a residency at John Hopkins. And their residency was much more like a physician residency, and they were doing 200 hours a month. Um, and theirs was a lot more intense than mine was. And they put a lot more hours in for the same amount of pay. So, you know, their hourly rate was a lot lower than mine. Um, and so, you know, you could definitely find one of those residencies and like maybe sure you could say, oh, they're taking advantage of you because you're working a ton for, you know, a low stipend. But at the same time, like my coworker is amazing, like absolutely fantastic. They do an amazing job. They are really good in so many different aspects of emergency medicine. And while I also think that I'm good, I mean, they, they <laughs> definitely probably have like a one up on me because their residency program was more intense. Um, I, you know, in hindsight, maybe when I had done a program like that, yeah, um, but I was really, really ready to get back to like my support system in Florida and I was single-minded in that goal and so I went for something like this like this was my this was my only option I put all of my my eggs into one basket yeah so do you think having a residency would make you less likely or prevent you from switching specialties in the future um that's a good question I think if you're doing a residency, you typically want to be in that specialty. So I think that plays more of a mindset, like more of a role into like whether or not you're going to change down the line. Like I, you know, feel like I've invested a lot into my education in emergency medicine and I'm definitely going to stick out emergency medicine for as long as possible. Um, I don't think that it's going to be a negative like when I try and switch. It would be really like me trying to switch if I had just done emergency medicine for five years and not done a residency and was trying to get into Durham or whatever. Um, so I really, I, I don't think that it would inhibit you in any way. Um, I just think that maybe people who do residencies are less likely to switch early. Yeah. And I think that it depends on your residency too. Like if you do a like OBGYN or a dermatology rotation or sorry, residency, those I feel like are more limiting because that's something that's difficult to pivot from to begin with. 
Mm-hmm. So I've said this again and again, and this I say to pre-PA students a lot, it's a very common misconception that PAs can easily move laterally within specialties. Like you are not going to be a cardiothoracic surgery for 10 years and then try and get into Durham when they could take a new grad and groom that new grad and that new grad has all their like, experience fresh and out of no school. And no bad habits. And no bad habits that they have to fix. Yeah. But ER, internal medicine, family medicine, urgent care are very easy to pivot from. Like if you start in any of those roles and you decide you want to go into OBGYN or you want to go into Derm or you want to go into whatever, it's easy at that point to say, okay, well, I have experience in OBGYN. I do pelvic exams every day. Granted, they're STI checks most of the time, but I am capable of finding the service. Or tampon removals. Oh my God, the smell that you just made me remember it's it's one of those things where we can say like I can do a fetal ultrasound like I know exactly like I know the bad that can happen in OBGYN so like I'm a good candidate if you're gonna like take me on because I have that medical knowledge and like yeah I also know how to treat kids and I know how to treat old people and whatever else there may be but you know that that cervix I'd got that too so I think depends on the residency of whether or not it would be limiting and I don't think it's the residency that's the limiting part it's just the specialty by nature that makes sense that's much more eloquently said than what I tried than what I tried to say (laughs) yeah no both are good um okay so for both of y'all um wait how do I want to phrase this let me read the question again um okay is there anything that you did or could or somebody could do during PA school to Erin make them more competitive to get a residency and Jamie more competitive to make them able to just jump right into a job right out of school. Erin wants you to go first, Jamie. Oh, sorry. I Okay, I didn't know that's what that meant because it didn't make her bigger and I was like, what is she doing? <laughs> She's pointing at you and saying you go first. I was pointing to say you go first. I feel like I've done all of the talking because I'm a talker. Oh, I'm a talker too. It's okay. Anyways, um, so to get into like any job, um, so I don't know how all programs are set up. I guess I can only speak to my school, but at my school for clinicals, you have a preceptorship at the very end where you repeat one of your core rotations, whether that's internal medicine, family medicine, or ER. Those are your choices for us. And so if you are interested in ER, my first recommendation would be to repeat your ER rotation rather than something else because obviously that's going to be more helpful. Um, the other thing I would say is make your ER rotation, if possible, closer to the end so that it's like your fourth or fifth rotation rather than your very first one because you want to make an impression on the people that you're rotating with. I take students now and I have had students that there was one student, I had him overnight for three days in a row. And on that third day, I called the massage place at 8 a.m. when they opened, and I booked myself a massage for the same day because working with him was so stressful and so terrible, and he was so dumb. And then I had the very next week from his same program, the best PA student I've ever had. She helped me literally double my numbers because she would go see a patient. I would go see a patient at the same time. She'd staff it with me, and I, like after a couple of shifts together, I trusted her. I thought that her clinical judgment was good. I still obviously went and saw the patient and made sure I agreed with her. But like, she just gave me a really good exam. She made a good impression. And I immediately texted our lead and was like, 
hire her. If she applies, she's great. Take her. And I think that's really important. And that's exactly how I got my job. I don't know if they said I was great, but they did say, hey, like this girl wants to work in the ER, you should hire her. And networking, if you're going to get a new grad job, is really, really important because otherwise everything you're going to see is one year or more of experience. And then they just so, throw your application away if you don't exactly. have a year. <laughs> I, I agree with Jamie on a lot of the points. Um, so I went to PA school in D.C. I wanted to go back to Florida. Really hard to network when you don't have rotations, like in the hospitals. I didn't know anybody. So, you know, when I was applying to those jobs that said that they took new grads, uh, my application still kind of got tossed because I didn't know anybody. So I didn't have my foot in the door. I had no networking. Um, in terms of standing out for a PA residency slash fellowship, they do look at your GPA, so you've got to make sure that you have a good GPA. Um, they um, will require letters of recommendation, so similar to PA school where someone is writing you an actual letter and not just a reference. Um, you've got to have at least one from emergency medicine. In terms of you know, doing emergency medicine residency, like your rotations early versus late. I agree with Jamie. It shouldn't be like your first one. Um, but a lot of residency programs will actually have you apply in like November, December, January before you um, graduate because they start typically in either the summer or September. And so you do want to have your rotation at least in like November so that you can have that letter of recommendation from um, an EM provider. And if you were going to do any sort of extra, like your elective rotation, I actually really recommend doing a PEDS emergency medicine rotation. Um, because I think if you can go to a true pediatric emergency department and experience that, it is so different mm -hmm. than, you know, adult EM doctors practicing emergency medicine. Um, the fellowship trained pediatric emergency medicine physicians are amazing and excellent teachers. And I am so thankful that my residency program had um, a true peds ED in it. And I was able to experience and learn from these people because, you know, I just feel leaps and bounds more comfortable with treating pediatric emergencies than I would have ever felt without having them as my mentors. So, um, and then obviously, you know, doing again, just like another emergency medicine elective is also a really good thing. But if you can do like a true BTM elective, I think that's a great way to stand out to programs. Yeah, we did. And we did electives as well as our preceptorship, but our electives, we had two of them and they were each two weeks. If yours are similar to that, where it's like a very limited amount of time and there's no PEDS ER available to you, because that is kind of like a niche thing. Um, if that's not something that's going to be feasible, I would highly recommend doing either a trauma rotation or an ortho rotation as your electives, because those are probably the two biggest things in the ER that you need to know how to do. I actually did a peds ortho rotation for my elective, and it has made me very good at reading like pediatric elbows and peds has a lot of growth plates and there are a lot of things that look like fractures, but they're not, they're like weird nutrient canals and knowing that has allowed me to like, I had a three-year-old who had a spiral tibial fracture that the radiologist missed. And when I reviewed my own images, cause I look at all my own images, I was like, 
that's where she's tender and that's definitely a spiral fracture. And I called the radiologist and I was like, hey, you want to look at this again and tell me if you agree with this? And they actually said, yeah, yeah, it could be a fracture, especially if she's not walking on it and she's tender there. So I ended up putting her like in a long like splint and sending her to a pediatric emergency department where they could like treat her and get her like seeing ortho. But that what, like I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't done my peds ortho rotation because I would have just like blindly read the radiology report. And I would have been like, okay, no fracture. And I would have sent this kid home with no splint. And that's a no-no with toddler fractures. Yes. I actually, I really, that was a great point. And I don't even ever think about trauma or ortho, which is crazy because that's what my, um, like, off-service rotations were in my fellowship. But trauma and ortho are amazing rotations to take during PA school as well. Um, Ortho, I mean, how many ortho complaints do you think that you have a day, Jamie? Do you want to hear my favorite example from yesterday? So this lady comes in, she broke her arm because she fell. We're about to discharge her. She falls again in our frickin' ER and breaks her hip. Oh no! <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah, I cannot. Like, that was... It wasn't my patient, and I don't know how old she was or any other details about her, but... I got the text message from my friend that was like, I'm literally about to discharge her home. She's my last patient. I was about to leave an hour early and this happens. And I was like, oh, yeah, no. no. Well, y'all know I don't do ortho, broken bones. So. Ortho complaints in emergency medicine are so, so common. There's yeah. always falls, you know, there's always, or like I have a lot of open joints where where I'm right now because there's a lot of college students and college students like to do silly dangerous things when they're inebriated and so they come in and they'll be like yeah I like you know was doing something and my buddy had a knife and I put my hand through the knife and now I have this open fracture to you know my proximal phalanx and I'm like great thanks I'm I'm glad that you came to my emergency department with this let me fix you or they're like they hold up their arm. They're like, it's not supposed to look like this, and like yes! obviously deformed. And you're like, yes. You're like, aren't they you really paid? love and saying like, that? No, I'm very drunk. Reasons <laughs> I don't do ER. <laughs> Broke I bones. think that is my favorite thing. Is they come in and they're like, it's not supposed to look like this. I don't know what this means, but it's not supposed to look like this. Yeah. <laughs> well, it makes y'all feel better. I get those chief complaints too. I had one last week or a couple weeks ago when I was still seeing patients. That was their chief complaint was things are growing that shouldn't be there on their skin. <laughs> so, guess, uh. guess that's everywhere. Okay, I have one last question for both of you, um, and this is more related to current events. Um, with all of this crazy coronavirus stuff, because you guys, unlike me, are like in the thick of it, seeing these patients. Um, and I feel like there's been a lot of talk online and like the pre-PA club Facebook group about people maybe like questioning whether they want to go into medicine because of everything that's going on. Being in that role that maybe you did or didn't expect to ever be in because I don't think any of us predicted this um has that changed your thoughts on being a PA or being in emergency medicine or what would you like tell those people like who are thinking like I don't know about this anymore I would say no but I'm not really like a flight if it's going to be fight or flight kind of person so Like, my first instinct when this happened was, like, I'm excited I get to help rather than having to sit at home. And 
I also am a very extroverted person, and if I had to socially isolate with no one to talk to but my husband, I would go bananas. I love him to death. Don't get me wrong, but it's nice to still be able to go to work and have that normalcy. Um, but this, these patients are sick. It is haunting. I have colleagues that have been in medicine for like 15, 20 years, and we've never seen anything like this. I mean, these patients come in, and I'm sure you've seen this, Erin, but they, they come in, they're so sweaty, they're breathing so hard, and they crump so quickly. Like, you can tell from looking at them that their pulse ox is going to be 79%. And you, like, get them on the non-rebreather, and they cannot do anything further because high-flow oxygen aerosolizes it, and we try so hard to not tube them, but every recommendation right now is that if you think you're gonna get there, you're gonna do it. And within an hour, a lot of these people are getting tubed. So we are taking care of them. And almost all of them are day seven to 10. Um, I think most people are coming in on day nine for us, which is really weird. But I mean, I've had, I have, a, we have several wards that are just completely turned into COVID units. and. You can walk in the room and just, like, it's like a kidney stone. Like, kidney stones, when you walk in the room, they're always writhing in this, like, particular way, and you're like, you have a kidney stone. You don't even need to examine them. You just know. COVID is like that. It has, like, a very distinct look. Like, when you walk in the room, you hear their cough. You see how sweaty they are. They're all just really diaphoretic. You're like, you have COVID. Like, in the very beginning of this, some of them were convincing for flu. Like, especially the, the day four or fivers who were like, just can't stop coughing. I've had this for like four or five days. And I think we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but they do tend to turn the corner. Like there are a lot of these people who get totally healed. They never get intubated and they do fine. But there are also a lot of these people and there seems to be, I mean, a lot of these people who are young are either obese or they have hypertension, but they've never been diagnosed. So they're not truly otherwise healthy. Like they do have comorbidities and the ones who are older have like a hundred different comorbidities and they all get sick the exact same way, the exact same pace. So it's been just very like weird to see. And it's cool to be in a time of like, they're literally going to write about this in textbooks. And like, I can say like, I was in the thick of it. Now I will not think it's so cool if I get sick and end up very sick, but I'm not, terribly worried because I don't have kids and I don't live with my parents like I'm not really worried about the people I'm going to infect because like my husband and I are both young and healthy and we exercise we don't have meds like so even if we do get sick we're both just kind of like eh, that's our fate like this is just what it is this is my job and in the I like there's definitely been waves of emotion like there are days that I'm just scared shitless there are other days where I'm like this is cool I'm pretty proud of myself and there are other days where I'm just like worried and anxious but I think today because I have today off and I've been not really digesting any coronavirus stuff and I got some vitamin D and I'm in a pretty good mood and my husband just brought me a beer I'm in like a very optimistic mood about this I think that it's going to be like a lot of people are going to get really sick but I think we are doing the very very best we can to learn about it and I'm like kind of in awe of how much research that is being done on vaccines and treatment, whether it's anti-malarials or it's antivirals or whatever they're trying to do. And the only thing that I don't like is political and we won't go there. So um, I, I think it's actually great that you're asking Jamie and I, because I think our perspectives are different. Um, in terms of being a fight or flight person, I am 100% a flight person. 
Um, and in terms of being extroverted versus introverted, I'm also 100% like an introvert. I would love to be self-isolating at home right now, <laughs> like, and doing nothing but hanging out with my cats all day and like, you know, cleaning my house and just doing, doing, working from home. Um, with that being said, no, this would never, ever make me change wanting to go into medicine. Um, and I think if but oh, with I caveat, love that. I love that we're so different, but ultimately our conclusion is the same. That was not what I expected. That you're gonna be like, nope, never doing it here again. I'm out. No, <laughs> peace out. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I. So I can definitely say I would never change doing medicine. I love doing medicine. I love helping people. I love making a difference. I know that I'm making a difference right now. Um, I will say that I think if for all of the pre-PAs who are thinking to themselves, oh my God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Like the chances of something like this happening again are probably low. But with that being said, if you're having doubts, you should look into those doubts a little bit more and maybe try and get some more hands-on experience and see whether or not you actually like medicine because medicine is not for everybody. I think that's Um, a good point. A lot of people think that this is like a glamorous field, not just emergency medicine, but like being a PA in general, like it's very trendy right now. It's very like Instagram is hot with PAs. Like they're everywhere. They're on freaking TikTok. And I think a lot of people go into it and then they're like, oh, this is not what I expected. So it's very important to shadow and like know what the role is. And not just for being a PA, but like medicine in general. I think a lot of people start college as a impressionable 18 year old and they're told that like doctors and PAs and nurses like we're always going to be needed and they're like all right that's a stable career but you have to make sure that you actually like it too right and so I think if you're having doubts explore your doubts don't shove them in a closet um in terms of emergency medicine um would I do emergency medicine again ultimately the answer is yes Um, I think like Jamie, I go through waves. Okay. So there are some days where I think about it and I feel super overwhelmed and I feel super stressed and, you know, I've even like cried about the thought of going to work. Um, Mm -hmm. and then there are other days where I'm like, no, this is fine. Like this is life. This is what I signed up for. I knew exactly what I was getting when I got into emergency medicine. I knew that it was going to be hard. I knew that I was going to have to think. I knew that no patient was going to present the same way and that I was constantly going to be learning and constantly going to be challenging myself and I am ready for this challenge. And then there are other days where I'm just like kind of numb to it and I don't have any thoughts, good or bad. Um, and I feel like those thoughts kind of like go in like, like a cycle, like it repeats over and over. Um, I am the opposite of Jamie in the fact that when I'm off, I actually feel worse about it because I'm thinking about it and I'm thinking, oh my God, I don't want to go back to work and this is scary. Um, and then when I'm actually at work, I'm like, no, this is fine. Like I can handle this. I'm prepared. Like being in the moment, being in the quote trenches, you know, makes me feel better about my decision. Um, I've definitely had days at home, though, where I feel the same as you, where I'm like, man, this really, really sucks. Especially, like, going to the grocery store is, like, very sobering for me. Yeah. I I usually don't wear any protective equipment to the grocery store, but I, like, I posted to my Instagram. I don't know if any of my followers listen to this podcast, but if so, I'm sorry for repeating this story. But this lady, like, spit at me in the deli line. She didn't literally spit. She was yelling at me for something unrelated, but she was standing too close to me, and she was, like making aerosolized droplets with her freaking anger 
And I just wanted to be like, do you not understand, like, what this social distancing is supposed to be for? Like, back away from me. And when I'm home, I, like, look out and, like, see my neighbors, like, standing six feet apart and stuff. And I'm like, this is real. Like, at work, it just kind of feels like work. Like, I dress the same way when I see a CDF patient. Okay, that's an exaggeration. I obviously don't wear an N95 or a capper for a CDF patient. But, like, the... I mean, I'm wearing the right equipment. I feel like I'm in control when I'm at work. And then it's really easy at home to just be like, all right, this is not as in control as we thought it was because you see all the other things that are going on. But I try really hard to stay away from, like, all of the social media and news and, like, podcasts and radio stations. Like, I try not to digest that when I'm off because otherwise, like, I do get really overwhelmed too. Yeah. Um, and that's what I've had to do. So I no longer listen to like the radio stations because they're all talking about it and it just makes me stressed. Um, I also am in a little bit different of a position than Jamie. I live at home with my mom. My mom is obviously older because she's my mother. Um, she's super healthy. She's in much better shape than I am, but, um, it is something that I like think about, about the fact that like am I bringing this home to her? Is something going to happen to her? Like she's in that age group where maybe she would have a bad outcome from it. Um, and that thought is very, very sobering. Um, and then originally, like when it first came out and we didn't know anything about it and there was thought that we could transmit it to our pets. I was really concerned. About my yeah. <laughs> I was really, really concerned about my cats. So... <laughs> My priorities are really in line. My friend um, had to put her cat down on Monday, and I literally was like, did he have coronavirus? Like, that was my first thought. And he didn't. He had something otherwise horrible happen to him. But I was just like, holy crap. Like, And shortly after that, my sister, who was a vet student, sent me an article that like there is a cat who was confirmed positive with COVID and had a cough. And I was like, why are you telling me this? <laughs> Because that cat did fine. Both the owner and the <laughs> pet recovered. But she was like, just FYI, they think that dogs can't transmit it, but the cats potentially can. And I was like, what? So Okay, so that's super stressful. Jamie has given me more stress in my life. There's only one cat in the entire world that tested positive, though. And for all we know, this wild was contaminated because he lived with the owner. Like, maybe he licked his owner and it just happened to be in his You're like, right. It nose. was probably contaminated. It was probably they've tested, contaminated. They've tested a lot of animals. They are actually studying this because they want to know, like, how, are, how did it get to humans? Like, what yeah. is it transmitting from? Should we be worried about our pets? Because, like, how many people have an outdoor cat that, like, frolics inside just to eat? So yeah, there it's if the fact that there's literally only one and there's like literally hundreds of thousands of humans, I think you're doing pretty good. Um, it's all like right, spray them so with so Lysol; they'll be fine. Oh, so my cat actually really, really enjoys the scent of Lysol. Good. <laughs> and anytime I like spray it to clean, this is fat ginger. I don't know. Like Jamie said, I don't know how many of my followers listen to this. You know, I sound so fancy when I say that, but so fat ginger. <laughs> Um, really, really likes the smell of Lysol, and if you spray anything with, with Lysol, she'll come up and she'll lay down on the spot. <laughs> Sounds like my so child. Funny. So, um, I had one more thought that I was going to say. Oh, in terms of patients, um, I am not as much in the thick of it as Jamie, and um, I have not had a ton of patients who 
have it, have had it. Um, and so I am still finna- like figuring out my clinical gestalt as to who I think has it and who I think don't have it. Um, like Jamie said, you know, kidney stones, absolutely. They come in, there is a look, there's a story. I'm like, you 100% have a kidney stone. Like I'm good at getting it. Um, and I'm sure at some point I'll get good at figuring out who has COVID and who doesn't. Um, yeah. but until I like figure that out, it's kind of stressful thinking to myself, you know, my thoughts at this point is I'm thinking that every single patient has it when I go into their room. Yeah. For months, we've been having patients, though, that are flu negative. They clinically look like a flu. And then we end up sending them home because we otherwise would have. And once COVID started getting bigger, we started thinking a little bit harder about, like, does this patient need to go home or does this patient need to stay? Like, their flu's negative. They probably have coronavirus, but, the st- like, the CDC's not recommending testing them. So we definitely have had our fair share of people that we were just like, this person probably has it but we can't test them and like that is scary to me because how many people did we send home like that ended up having a bad outcome because we sent them home but our protocol is pretty much like if you're not hypoxic and you're not like really really working to breathe you don't stay you go home even if you feel short of breath and I feel horrible about that thank goodness they suspended our patient satisfaction scores so we can't like have people telling uh, like the world how terrible we are but they are like if they're short of breath but objectively by like vital signs and by clinical appearance looking okay we're sending these people home yeah that's kind of what's happening here too well thanks guys for your input